John chapter 4 is where we're at this morning. Uh, This morning is part one. If there's any glitches with the slides, it's because I sent the wrong sermon manuscript to to Daniel, and he is building it on the fly. Um, So this is uh, our series, The Gospel of John, Following Jesus Together. If you're taking notes, the subtitle this morning is The Samaritan Woman, part one. And we're going to be in John 4, verses 1 through 18. That's where we're going this morning. Uh, We have a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to go ahead and read God's word to us, pray, and we're going to jump right into the message. So if you would look at John 4, beginning in verse 1, and read down to verse, oh, I'll read to verse 9. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, this is God's word set before us. Let's look at him in prayer. Father, we desire to have our souls satisfied by the grace and gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, we, as your followers, desire that living water that you offer to well up within us and to satisfaction in Christ to overflowing, and that that living water in us would spill over onto friends who don't know you, and they would hear the gospel, repent of their sins, believe the good news of Jesus, and find joy everlasting. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, as we look to you in your word, we are going to see ourselves in this woman, the Samaritan woman, And we pray that by your grace, we would respond to you the way that she does. And Lord, that you would satisfy our souls with you. Because there is no satisfaction in life apart from you. No true satisfaction. There is no healing apart from you. There is no hope apart from you. True hope, true healing. So Lord, please bring those things to us through your Son and by your Spirit this morning. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's people said, amen. Well, the outline this morning comes to us in three parts. If you're taking notes, here they are. Number one, setting the stage, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And that's the first nine verses. After the stage is set for us by scripture, we'll move into the first interaction or second interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman with our second point, learning that Jesus is the true source of living water. Jesus is the true source of living water. That's verses 10 to 15. 
And then we will close our time with verses 16 to 18, seeing how Jesus graciously shines his light on our darkness. That's where we're going this morning. If you read the newsletter, my intention had been to cover all 45 verses. And as the sermon was approaching 90 minutes to two hours in length, I figured since it's Bo's birthday today, I should preach longer. Well, it's cut in half. So here we go. Would you look again with me at verse 1? Let me read those nine verses again. We're setting the stage, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Note that place. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John the disciple gives commentary, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So we're setting the stage here. Now, uh, if you've been a believer, if you've gone to Sunday school, if you've grown up in the church, this is probably an exceptionally familiar text for you. Um, And the problem with familiarity is familiarity. In other words, you get used to it. You, 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 You live in Flagstaff so long that you forget how beautiful this place is and how beautiful the mountain is, and you can drive around town and not even notice the landscape when people travel from around the world to come here. This text is kind of like that. You can get used to it, and you can lose the details. So you might be unfamiliar, or... Maybe you uh, have not grown up in the church, like I did not. Uh, Maybe you don't yet know Christ, and so you're investigating his claims and searching him out, and this is unfamiliar territory. Wherever we are this morning, we need to recognize that these words and this episode that we're seeing are nothing but jaw-dropping. Shocking. There should be a collective gasp in reading what Jesus is doing. Now, it's true, we should have a collective gasp in anything that Jesus does, because Jesus turns everything inside out and upside down and pursues you and me. For a first century Israelite, or for a first century Samaritan for that matter, each considered the other the worst of the worst. Centuries of hatred and animosity lay between that small gap at the well between Jesus and this this woman. Why? Well, you go way back to King Solomon, David's son. After King Solomon died, the land of Israel erupted in civil war. And that civil war lasted hundreds of years, and it was a northern and southern kingdom battle. And the dividing line was the south and Judah and the north, the other 11 tribes. 
And the south had the rightful Davidic line of kings. And the north was in rebellion. The constant refrain when you read through the books of kings is that the kings of the northern kingdom did what was right in their own eyes. So by 1 Kings 16, Samaria, uh, a king named Omri, he was wicked, bought a plot of land, named it Samaria, and made that the capital of the northern kingdom. And then his son was a guy named Ahab, who was the worst of all the kings. And Samaria became the seat of rebellion against God, of wicked Baal worship. And it spread throughout the land because as the king went, so went the people. And so Samaria embodied all the rebellion of the northern kingdom. Now generations later, moving from 1 Kings 16, moving to then 2 Kings 17, that whole time gap, by that time, God had sent prophets, Obadiah and Elijah and Elisha, to the northern kingdom, calling them to repent, and they said, no. And so God wiped away the northern kingdom. He wiped away their evil against him by the hand of the Assyrians. Now, the method of the Assyrians as they were looking for global conquest was to conquer one people and another people and then deport and import those peoples into opposite lands. So they conquered Babylon and took the Babylonians and put them in Samaria and other peoples. And they took the Samaritans and then they put them over in well, other places. In 2 Kings 17.25... These newly imported pagans already in this wicked land. 2 Kings 17.25 says that God sent lions to devour the people as judgment. These pagan people that had come into the land, they cried out because they knew it was divine judgment. And so then the uh, king of Assyria was alerted and a Jewish priest was pulled out of exile and then put back into Samaria. Now, mind you, this was one of those um, pagan Jewish priests who was brought back. And he taught them, as it were, the ways of God, which, which they weren't. And so what happened was you had a syncretistic faith. What does that mean? That's fancy talk. That means mingled faith. I like a little bit of Buddhism. I like some New Age mysticism. I like a little bit of Mormonism. I like a little bit of New Age spirituality. I like a little bit of this and that. And I'm going to go ahead and cobble together a Jesus in my own image and in my own liking. Well, they had done an, an Old Testament version of that where they had mingled the faith of the, the Babylonian worship brought into the land and this pagan Sumerian uh, Jewish priest brought into the land. And, and they had Torah. They had the first five books of the Bible. So the, their religion was part Bible and part pagan. It looked partially true and was fully false. And these foreign peoples intermingled with a few Jews who were left in the land, in that northern kingdom, the few Jews who were not deported. So then you had a, an intermingling of these uh, different people groups coupled with their perverted and false form of worship of God. And these people became the Samaritans. And these, this all happened, uh, say, somewhere around 
well, 1200 BC, something along those lines, um, give or take a few centuries. Uh, the, the reason is you have hundreds of years of animosity and issues now between these peoples, and here's Jesus sitting across from the Samaritan woman. As Caleb prayed a few moments ago, the current hostilities that we are seeing reigniting between Israel and Hamas are a fitting analogy of what it would have looked like 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, they just did a 2,000-year-ago version of what's happening right now. But Jesus walks right up to them. Jesus walks right up into Samaria to the town of Sychar, goes to this well, and Jesus being Jesus, he's unfolding things. Everything in this episode of gospel grace that we're seeing that's about to unfold before our eyes this week and Lord willing next week is this episode with this Samaritan woman stands in contrast with the temple scene in John chapter 2 leading to the Nicodemus scene in John chapter 3. They are foils of each other. The more religious and Jewish you were, the more you rejected and resisted Jesus. And here we're seeing the less, almost more pagan that you are, the Samaritan woman, the more welcoming they are of Jesus. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus, you remember when? By night. And Nicodemus was the Israelite of all Israelites who embodied all that Israel should have should have been, but here in John 4, it's noon. It's the sixth hour. It's midday. The sun is searing overhead. It's noon. Jesus met the woman with the outcast of outcasts. The contrast could not be more stark and more far apart from each other. Nicodemus versus the Samaritan woman. And I said that she was the outcast of outcasts. Not only because she's a Samaritan, but because she's a Samaritan woman in that society. And not only a Samaritan woman, but a woman who even appears to be an outcast among her own people because she came to the well alone at midday. And that's a fact of the text, but what it means is unclear, but it looks suspicious. It looks suspicious. So if Nicodemus was everything we thought we should be, ah yes, a model Israelite. The Samaritan woman stands for us this morning as everything we should not be. At least, at least from a worldly, darkness-hating-the-light perspective. Because if we're going to take the time to compare ourselves against ourselves, and, 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 and like we're prone to do, well then, we might say, well, at least I'm not like her. And with Jesus, by the time we're done, we're going to want to be like her. And scandal of scandals, Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, is all alone. I guess he hadn't read Billy Graham's book about not being alone with women. So scandal of scandals, Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, is all alone. The disciples have traveled into enemy-occupied territory, so to speak. They're looking for food. 
which in itself is worthy just to think about what that would have been like for them to go into this unsafe territory. And Jesus talks to this woman, and the language in the Greek is that Jesus is speaking to her not condescendingly, not like a dog. Jesus is speaking to her politely. He's speaking to her politely. He asks her to politely serve him water. He asks her politely, please serve me water, for he was thirsty. So what is Jesus doing before we see anything else in this text? Jesus is moving, not away from, but towards sinners. Jesus is not moving away from the defiled. He's moving towards the defiled. Jesus is not moving away from sufferers. Jesus moves towards sufferers in their suffering. Jesus is not moving away from this shameful woman. He's moving towards her in her shame and her sin. Jesus moves towards Samaritans. You know what that means then? Jesus moves towards you and me and all of us. We are seeing then that Jesus, for the sin bearer to bear our sin, he moves to us in our sin to shine his light, John chapter 1, John chapter 2, John chapter 3, to shine his light on our darkness, to expose our darkness, and to remove our darkness. And so in this way, the Samaritan woman is good news because she's about to get the gospel. And we as readers and listeners of the text are going to get the gospel too. And in this way also, this woman represents each one of us. Do you have sin in your past? Do you have remaining sin in your life? The answer is yes to both those questions. If you say no, you're deceiving yourself and calling God a liar. That's First John. Do you have shame that wants you to hide from the community and run away from God and try to earn his affection by doing certain things or making promises or things along those lines? Do you have suffering and sorrow in your life? Then, then Jesus is the one who is coming to you as he comes to the woman right now in his word in this very moment. None of us is as good as we think we are. And each of us is more loved by God than we could possibly hope or imagine. Which leads then to our second point. Jesus is the true source of living water. There's the stage. The stage is set. The conversation has begun. Jesus has approached her. It appears that she would have been fine to show up at the well and say nothing to him and use her bucket, draw out the water and leave. Point number two, Jesus is... The true source of living water. Please join me in verse 10. Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God. And who it is that is saying to you. Give me a drink. You would have asked him. And he would have given you. Living water. The woman said to him. Sir. You have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Well, Jesus genuinely wanted water. He was thirsty. But as always happens with Jesus, in many sweet ironies, Jesus begins to draw out the thirst of this woman's heart for something that she doesn't even know that she's thirsty for. Jesus asks her for water, which prompts her to ultimately ask him for living water. That's where the text is moving. Again, look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew, note these phrases, if you knew, Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now as readers, we know that Jesus is up to something. But this woman is still in the dark, literally and spiritually. She looks around, she sees that Jesus has no bucket. And so she asks him, where does this living water come from? And, and, and notice her question in verse 12. She is detecting something. She is a Samaritan. Her Bible only goes to Deuteronomy. It's only five books. She doesn't have the prophets and the writings. So, so she has a small Bible. She doesn't have all the revelation, but she knows about Jacob. And so in verse 12, she's asking Jesus, you aren't greater than Jacob, the patriarch, are you? And notice that this echoes the same question we saw last time together. Do you remember that dispute at the end of John 3 about whether John the Baptist was greater than Jesus or not because John the Baptist was first? Well, this takes it to the next level. Who can be greater than Jacob other than perhaps Abraham? And so she asks, you aren't greater than Jacob, are you? Jesus takes it a step further because in her question, she would also be aware of Moses. And those many times that Moses led the people of Israel through the wilderness, and in leading them through the wilderness, those many times that Moses gave them water from the rock and the springs that came up. So that there's, a, there's a question underneath her question. And that question is, are you greater than Moses? Because Moses gave us water. Jacob gave a well. You're talking about living water and you don't have a bucket. So Jesus takes it a step further, contrasting the water that he gives, not with the physical water, as it were, from Jacob's well. Drink the water from the well, you'll stay thirsty, Samaritan woman. Drink the water that Jesus gives, and you will be eternally satisfied. Right? 14b, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that people become the source of living water. 
only that the source of living water is placed in people by Jesus. Do you see the difference? The living water not only wells up, whatever it is, it overflows every follower of Jesus. If you are a Christian this morning, we're discovering not only what happened to us, but what is supposed to be a reality regularly of our lives. Living water that not only wells up but overflows, not a trickle but a torrent. Living water. What does that mean? Well, it reminds me of Revelation 7, verses 16 and 17. Revelation 7, 16 and 17, listen to this. Speaking of those in the presence of Christ, the new heavens and new earth, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst, note that word, thirst, any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for, here's why they're not going to hunger, here's why they're not going to thirst, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But again, what does this mean, this this living water? We saw in Revelation on the last day for the eternal day to follow, there's no more tears and they're wiped away and Jesus the Lamb will be shepherding us. The Lamb is the shepherd But what does it mean, this living water that he promises the Samaritan woman? We we have to peek ahead to see to John chapter 7. So turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Ooh, I hear your Bible's pages turning. It's music to my ears. Page 30, or verse 37. What does it mean that there's living water? John 7, 37. On The last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, I wonder if you're thirsty this morning. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Again, what does that mean, Jesus? Well, verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified, gone to the cross and risen from the tomb. So by peeking ahead from John 7, coming back to John 4, the living water then that Jesus speaks of is not just a beautiful image. It's not just some floating in the sky, strange spiritual idea. The the living water is nothing other, no, the living water is no other than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And doesn't this tie us right back to John chapter 3 in the conversation with Nicodemus? It does. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus as Jesus was explaining Ezekiel 36 to Nicodemus? Unless a, por- unless a person, this is, this is verse 5 of chapter 3, unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is preaching the same gospel sermon to the Samaritan woman that he did to Nicodemus. Nicodemus didn't get it yet. The Samaritan woman will. The life and ministry of God's Spirit in our lives, in your life, is meant to well up and overflow in increasing belief and satisfaction in Jesus. Belief and satisfaction in Jesus. And so then now we back up in our text. Look again at verse 10. What does Jesus lead off with? If you knew the gift of God, and then on he goes. What is the gift of God? Can you see it? Well, it's the living water. And so most of us would answer, well, the gift of God is the gospel. It's eternal life in Jesus. Jesus taking our sins on the cross and dying in our place, being buried and rising from the grave three days later. Amen. Yes. Hallelujah. That's true. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's an implication of what Jesus is talking about. That's not the gift of God. No, the gift of God in verse 10 is the living water itself who is God himself. The Spirit of God. Do you see that in the text? The gift of God is God Himself. The third person of the Trinity. The one who causes us to be born again. Born from above. Born of water. Is also the one whose pleasure it is to take up eternal residence in you. The gift of God in the gospel is God himself. Your salvation and justification is not the end of your salvation, so to speak. It's the beginning. It's so that God himself can take up residence in you. Have you forgotten John 3, 16? It was the Father's love that moved him, as it were, to send the Son to save and redeem sinners like you and me, and like the Samaritan woman, and like Nicodemus. And Jesus bearing away our sin is the beginning of God's work in our life to dwell in us. Do you remember the promises of the new covenant that we looked at in the beginning of John 3 from Ezekiel 36? The promise of what Jesus was doing, what makes what Jesus is doing different from what Moses did, what makes the new covenant new is that we are given new hearts, new spirits, and then God's spirit comes to dwell in us also. We are made a new creation, a new humanity. God's word implanted in us, and we obey and worship from the inside out, whereas Moses tried to give it from the outside in, and that couldn't work. But can you detect God's joy? You know that God's a happy God, right? And our happy God, His joy in the gospel is to give us the gift of Himself. That's His plan. That's His plan. And now Jesus is going to speak a lot more about this once we get to the upper room discourse in chapter 13. But for now, what we need to see is that it's God's good pleasure to give us living water Namely, himself. 
And when himself takes up residence in us, that's the overflowing life eternal of joy and satisfaction and happiness in a good God who loves us and saves us precisely because we were darkness. And the darkness hates the light, but we've been born from above, John 3, and he saved us. So living water is the portrait of eternally satisfying eternally ever-increasing joy, eternal power in an eternally intimate relationship with God that God wants with us and gives us. But not just in eternity future, when we enter the next age, it began the moment of your conversion. The moment that Jesus saved you and you repented of your sins and you believed, The Spirit took up residence inside you, and since that time, God has dwelt. He sealed you for eternity to never leave you or forsake you. And He is in us. So so these promises of satisfaction and joy and power and intimacy are not just future statements. There ought to be increasing joy now, even in hardship and suffering. There ought to be satisfaction now, even in confusion and perplexity. There ought to be power in our life to defeat the sins in our life that Jesus has already defeated for us when he died and rose in our place. Jesus had a showdown in John 2 with those religious leaders who refused him. Remember, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He had the showdown with Nicodemus. And the Samaritan woman, she, will discover, has been living in sin, as all are. But it reminds me, then, of all of this good news, the stark reality of what reality is. What happens with the darkness? Well, what am I saying? I have in mind Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah 2.13, God speaks through the prophet to his people. And he says, for my people have committed two evils. Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, the second evil, in place of forsaking, and have hewed out cisterns, bowls in the ground for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, everyone is thirsty. Spiritually thirsty. But since the darkness hates the light, John chapter 1, end of John chapter 3. Since the darkness hates the light because its deeds are evil, we look left to ourselves, even still as Christians, because of remaining sin, we look to quench our thirst From anyone or anything other than Jesus. There is a part of us, even in Christ, that has a propensity to go look for living waters elsewhere, which are not living waters. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Friend, if you're not a believer, 
If you have not repented of your sins, dedicated your life to Christ, and are following him and your allegiances to him, understand this. The Bible would define every effort in your life to find identity and meaning and satisfaction and hope and anything else, legacy, whatever your deal is. Every effort you have done is to try to quench thirst, a soul thirst, as it were. But what we see in Jeremiah 2, that when we live disobedient lives to God, unsubmissive to his word, believer or not, we will forsake the fountain of living waters and we will build broken cisterns, pots in the ground that can't hold water. And so my friends, believer or not, the question before us that Jesus' penetrating words ask is this, how about you? Where do you find your meaning? Where do you find your value and fulfillment in life? Is it kids? Is it grandkids? Great-grandkids? Is it retirement? Education? Social status? Bank account? Leisure? Hobbies? Humor? Recreation? Where do you find your identity? That's a pretty philosophical question. One way that you can find the answer to that question of where do you find your identity, in other words, where are you trying to find living water, is to run a diagnostic question in your own soul asking this, what do you want to be known for? What do you want to be known for? Or to ask the same question a different way, what do you hope people might say about you at your funeral? Good father, hard worker, great homeschool mom, most educated guy I knew, whatever your deal is. When you can honestly drill down and answer your question of what you want to be known for, what you want to have on your tombstone, what you want to have the people say at your funeral, there you will find this. Anything that you say that is not centered on and motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ is a broken cistern in your life that you're trying to get life from. And friend, Jesus is here to tell you, you can never get water from a broken cistern. So yes, you can seek to be a good mom and grandmom and, and hard worker and friend and all those things, but it must be motivated and flow from you having already been drinking from the fountain of living waters to go serve Jesus in those areas. I hope you can see the difference because we can turn even good things into bad things by making them ultimate things. Jesus is drawing the Samaritan woman to the light and I pray that he's drawing all of us to the light. That he might expose her darkness and, and any areas of remaining darkness in our lives. And he does the same with us. Not just for salvation, but to continually draw us away from hewing false cisterns. It's God's joy to give us joy in himself. Which leads to our final point, number three. Jesus graciously shines his light on our darkness. Verses 16 through 18. Jesus graciously shines his light on our darkness. Verse 16. 
Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Jesus is being gentle here, but he is being surgical. He's going to cut deep into her heart to access a heart of darkness to give her a heart of light. That's how he operates. She responded, and she was on safe ground, right? She told the truth, go call your husband. I, I don't have a husband. She told the truth, just it wasn't the whole truth. So then was it really true? She wasn't necessarily required to give all this information to Jesus, but Jesus knows. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now, number six, is not your husband. The Samaritan woman, we discover, this woman who came out at noon by herself to this well to draw water, is with her sixth man, living together unmarried. And this, for her, was the species of sin that Jesus went after. We all have sin. We all have uh, bents towards certain species of sin, and Jesus in his grace doesn't leave it in the ether of just kind of repent of sin generically. He goes after specific sins. And what he was doing, because for most likely with this woman in the first century, these husbands and this man she was with now was her identity. And he was likely her security. He was also likely her shame. Now, it's not uncommon for interpreters to presume that she's a prostitute. Uh, It's a common thing. The text doesn't say that. That might be slander of this woman. I don't think that we can draw that conclusion. The text says no such thing. It's an assumption rooted that she came out to draw water by herself at midday. The number of men that she's had. But, but it doesn't indicate either that she's been widowed five times over. Here's what we do know. is This is an agrarian, hierarchical society. A woman's worth, a woman's security, and a woman's hope was in the man that she married and the children she bore And that a man could divorce his wife with relative ease. So we don't know her circumstances. I think it's very safe to say that many, if not all these men, have sinned against her. And she against them. She is most likely a victim of their sin. But she is not guiltless herself. We we are always responsible for our own sins, and people's sins against us is not permission to sin against them. But but to automatically say she's a prostitute, the text does not say that. But here's what we do know. She's a broken woman who drinks from broken cisterns, just like you and me. Just like you and me. And so in her case, her, her sin, sorrow, and shame is in this track record of broken relationships, and likely her identity And this is where Jesus draws near. This is where the place that you might feel uncomfortable and you move away from her if this was you in a counseling session or she was a friend. But no, what does Jesus do? Jesus goes, draws near and goes right into the heart of her sin. Jesus gently brings her sin to light, brings it out into the dark, out of the darkness, 
onto the table before them so that he might give her a new heart and fill it with living water leading to eternal life. Friends, when you listen to a sermon, whether I'm preaching it or someone else is preaching it, and it seems like we've been reading your emails and your mail, and you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or you're talking with a friend or another believer, and they say something to you that is fairly meaningless to them, but you just changes your world, I see those as times that Jesus is drawing near us through the preaching of his word and through other believers to draw us out, to bring us under conviction, to take us out of the darkness and bring us into the light. Because Jesus is a savior. And that means that he is in the business of breaking broken cisterns so that you see them as broken and to come to him for his living water. The good news of the gospel is so good because it's while we were still yet sinners that Christ died for us. You know, Thomas Watson said in the mid-1600s this, Until sin be bitter, Christ won't be sweet. Until sin be bitter... Christ won't be sweet. He says elsewhere, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. It's from his book called The Doctrine of Repentance. So to taste the living water of Jesus is to simultaneously spit out the dust of the empty cisterns. And and if you're willing to hold on to your sin is more important than following Jesus, friends, stop fooling yourself. Yes, sin has fleeting pleasures, maybe even advancing you in certain stations in life and giving you a, a life of ease. But you must not deceive yourself. God will not bless what he has already condemned in his word. And so we can't play with sin and fiddle with it. But what is so brilliant about what Thomas Watson said, and it's what is Jesus is interacting with this woman, is Jesus is helping this woman see that sin is bitter and he is sweet. It's what another guy said 100 years later, so now we're in the late 1700s, Thomas Chalmers, Scottish guy, in a sermon, and here's the title of the sermon. The expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. The brilliance in that statement is that our hearts, which Calvin calls idol factories, our hearts are prone to attach themselves to anything other than Jesus. And Thomas Chalmers' sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, means that What we need is to see the sweetness of Christ. We must recognize that his gospel of grace and his bearing of our sins and his gift of himself to indwell us by his spirit is greater than the broken cisterns we go after. And when we see that, we have a new affection, a new love, a new joy, and it's we go to Christ. So is your love for Jesus dim? Are things more interesting than the infinitely interesting one? Are things more exciting than him? Pluck out your eye and cut off your right hand. 
Look to the gospel. Look to Christ. So whether you're a Christian or not, there are daily sins that want us, that pull us to try to quench our thirst in a broken cistern, to pull us away from the light, to pull us away from the living waters. We're easily seduced and we're easily tricked. And the argument of these old saints, Watson and Chalmers, and Jesus, is that we need to see Christ for who he is and all of his saving and glorious glory by first offering her living water, then pointing to the darkness of her sin, Jesus gently brought the Samaritan woman to the light. Jesus asked a somewhat shocked, or she then, in response, asked a somewhat shocked and rhetorical question in verse 12, almost like a whisper. It reads, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? It's a rhetorical question, and she assumes the answer is no. No, Jesus is not greater than Jacob. But she's beginning to realize now the answer is yes, Jesus is greater. So friend, is Jesus greater or not? Is he greater or not in your life? How about you? Each of us is to bring our sin to Christ, a willing Savior, to confess it, repent of it, to come out of darkness and into his marvelous light and the promise of his living water welling up in us to life eternal. It reminds me of Isaiah 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Verse 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength. He's my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples and proclaim that his Name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Do you desire? Let's pray. We desire, Lord, help our dim desires. Jesus, you are great and you move to the outcast, which means you move towards us. And Lord, you, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. You are the one who has taken our sins and cast them behind your back, trampled them underfoot and thrown them into the depths of the sea and hung them on the cross. And so, O oh Lord, we cherish and treasure you. Save in this place. Make your name great because it is great. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen.